And uh, we should be live on Facebook. And I believe we're live on some of the audio. Okay, well, what you believe needs to be accepted in this area here. Yeah. Ah, so, let's see. Here we go, I think. You're telling me I'm ready to go. Yep. Well, you're wrong. Oh. No, I'm not. I'm never. I'm usually writing this thing while I'm sitting here. Okay, let's uh, let's take a run at it here. October the 17th. I hope that's what it is. Is that what it is? October 17th, 2021. Lecture discussion number 151 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, First Kings 13, Second Kings 23. Well... Last Sunday, I fully thought I was going to be done. I was going to conclude the immortality of animals file. And I did it knowingly. I knew while knowing that, that I left many extraordinary verses on the sidelines, so to speak. I couldn't include them. There's just too many. Ecclesiastes 3.14 for one. So I'm going to kind of run through these a little bit just because they're so important. Ecclesiastes 3.14. Uh, whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Uh, and, and that sets the table for Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21, where, where everybody, not everybody, but overwhelmingly people fail. Commentators, theologians fail at Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. If you look at 3.14, whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. And pay attention to that. Psalm 50, uh, 10, 10 through 11. Um, powerful. I, I call it a monster. It's such a big, powerful verse with regard to this subject. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the behama, the animals on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the beasts of the fields are mine. That, that's God saying that. God says that in Psalm 50, 10 through 11. The statement by God comes under the canopy. That statement by God comes under the canopy of Psalm 57. I have too many dots. Sorry. Psalm 50, verse 7. I am your God, your God. I am God, Elohim, the Mighty One, God, the YHVH. Psalm 50-1. 50, 50, verse 1. Now I added a little bit to it so that you would know it was the Elohim. And again, Psalm 50 is gigantic when it comes to the immortality of animals. It, it is a cornerstone. God declares that the animals are his. The world with all its fullness is his. Therefore, God himself is judge, Psalm 50. 12. 56. Uh, Obviously, Psalm 50, 11, uh, 10 through 11 belongs in all the discussions of the immortality of animals, especially 3... 18 through 21. Now, I put 22 up there because I, I know that 22 is so important, but most of the people will not. They stop at 21. That's a mistake that they make. As you know, Psalm, uh, Ecclesiastes 3.14 sets the table, as I said. It's underneath. It's the substrate of 3.18 through 21. And so you, you need to know that. And they don't. Whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Knowing that, now read 3.18 through 21. See if you make the same mistake. You will. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. They're con they're, they are conjoined to their position, those that have it, as you know. I'll get into that in a minute. Obviously, again, 
Psalm 50, 10 through 11, belongs in all discussions of Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 21, the immortality of animals, alongside of Matthew 19, 14 through 15. That one might surprise a few people, but it, I believe, is critical. Mark 10, 15 comes with it. So these guys are together. Luke is in there as well. Luke to 18, 17. So do not forbid the little children. Let me write the word little here. Do not. Do not forbid. Do not forbid the little children come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So what else is such as these ultimately becomes the question. The point being, yea, a point being, I can easily go on and on and on and on and on some more on with respect to the immortalities of animals. And I've always known that in Jeremiah 32 to 27. Wow. It's incredible. Behold. Jump up and down. You see a behold, you have to stop. You've heard me say that for my whole so-called career. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. All flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? What's the rhetorical question there? Is there anything too hard for me? No. The answer, no. Consider what that verse is saying. Why God is saying it about himself. Why does he have to say this? Is there anything too hard for me? No. What's it imply? People think there is things that are too hard for him. Jeremiah 32.27 should destroy the argument from the animal cease to exist cohort group there. It should destroy it. Because they always say that there are too many animals for God to resurrect. He's not willing or he's not able. Over and over, it's a common prevalent statement that God is not able and therefore not willing because they would fit together. That's destroyed by Jeremiah 32, 27. However, it's in every church in this city. It drives me nuts. I can't stand it. Not every, but God, grief's overwhelming. I get 100 pastors, I'm going to get 95 of them. They stand there like zombies, never having read Jeremiah 32, 27 and don't know how it fits. I'm bringing this to the forefront again this week because of Supper Day. It's his fault. If he exists, I mean, we're not sure. He, he's not, you know, he could merely be an apparition, right? You know, we don't know. Mm-hmm. It's up in doubt. A doppelganger of my devious construction. I could, I could, we could have an actor pretending to be him, right? They don't know. People out there don't know. They'll never find out. Anyway, Supper Day called me uh, last week to let me know that he had recorded last Sunday's post-lecture rant where I vented my frustration. I'm doing it again today. And I did it at pastors, and I've seen it happen, and I've heard it happen, and I hear pastors who are quite proud of this position. They really are thinking this is a wonderful thing that they're doing. They will tell, they will say, that you'll find it everywhere. They will tell a smile. I guess it must come out of some seminary somewhere to do this, a homiletics course somewhere. How did it get so spread so? Uh, how did it get spread so far and wide? It doesn't make any sense to me. But 
here's the scenario, or here's what happens all the time. A pastor, pastors in these churches, a, a small child, a little child, will lose his pet. I'll, I'll say dogs, because I'm a dog guy. He will lose his beloved dog, and that pastor will tell a small, he'll lose it to death, and the, that pastor will tell a small child that their beloved dog has gone to heaven. That's what they'll do. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. And then they always say that. But when that child's a little older, when he, I'll never say that to him. When that child is older, the same pastor will teach them that all animals cease to exist based on Ecclesiastes 3.18-21. They will teach them that animals are dead forever. Won't tell the small child that, the little child, but they'll wait. Oh, you know, what's the, what's the age, do you think? Seven, eight, nine, ten? Give me an age. And I remember last week saying something disrespectful about this. Um, perhaps, I, I, you know, I don't have that good a memory, but perhaps it's possible that I said I call these pastors stupid liars. It's possible I did that. Dave would know for sure. But just perhaps. I'm not, I'm not positive. I have, I have a plausible deniability. I might also have said that their supposed teaching was evil, was wicked, was blasphemy, and was heresy. Now, it's, I might have said that. Who knows for sure. And if I didn't say it, what have I done now? You said it. I'm saying it now. Just in case. There's any doubt. Anyway, Subday wanted to add this rant to the lecture. Now, I, usually when I rant and do things like that, the, the, this is turned off. Terry comes up. But she was inefficient last week, apparently. <laughs> she comes up and turns that off to save me from these kinds of situations. And Dave called and said, hey, I want to add that rant to the lecture. Did you do that? I did. You did it. See? Now we're having to go court again. (laughs) He wanted to include it in the released materials and not just leave it here dying on the hardwood floor in front of me. Which meant that I would have to apologize. No. I'd have to say I was sorry. No. (laughs) Not really fake sorry. (laughs) Or... I'd have to do that. <laughs> or I would have to defend it. Yes. Or I'd have to prove. I'd have to provide evidence that this crap. Can I say crap? Is it, is it okay? Can I do it? I'm sure Dave it will edit out all of the inappropriate craps. No. <laughs> no, Terry says no. Hey, where was I? I would have to testify. I'd have to substantiate my accusation that this crap sandwich disguised as orthodoxy is in fact wickedness. It's evil, it's blasphemous, it's heresy. That's pretty strong, bold talk for an ex-one-eyed, fat-looking guy. None of that applies to me anymore. I'm, I'm now anemic. And I'm blind still. I can't see, like I said. <sighs> anyway, that's a task uh, that I shall endeavor to accomplish today. And I submit that you're going to find my presentation to be predominating. If, uh, in other words, I think you'll find it to bring clarity to this. It's an illustration, in a sense. Why would you lie to a child that has lost his precious animal to physical death? Why would you lie to him? Because you lied, or you thought you lied... Mr. I'm going to lie and then I'm going to tell him the truth later guy. 
your belief, your interpretation is so putrid, it's so despicable, it's so indefensible that you have to lie to children who are mourning the death of a cherished animal. Now, name me another doctrine where you lie to children. If you have one, it's also crap. Can I say crap? Too many craps? Gotta be careful. I offend people. Unintentionally, I offend people. Again, let me repeat that. Your position, you guys out there doing this, your position is so rancid, you don't even know you're not lying. Now, some people will accuse me of setting up a straw man. They'll say, hardly anybody does this. Not true. Not in my experience. Check the internet. Unfortunately, this line to children is commonplace in the church and not confined to Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 21. For example, a pastor is routinely pronounced condemnation on the deceased. It's I run into it all the time. I, I have people who will call me and say, I went to the funeral and the pastor came up after the funeral or during the funeral and said something to the effect that the person who has died has gone to hell. And it blows my mind. They're informing the grieving parents uh, or the grieving families that their father, mother, or their siblings are in hell, destined for eternal torment. They'll do it. They'll certainly do it in their front of their congregations. Sadly, there's an impatience in this built into the clergy for some reason to announce who is saved and who is unsaved. And Dave is dealing with this all the time. He's online fighting these people all day long. And I don't have the uh, patience for it any longer, but he knows, as I, as I just illustrated, that this is a common thing. And all of that, announcing who is saved and who is unsaved, that's in direct contradiction and disregard, direct disregarding to Christ's words at Matthew 13, 29, Matthew 13, 39 through 40, Revelation 2, 23, Joel 2, 32, Romans 10, 13, Acts 21. 221, sorry, only Christ, only Jesus Christ is the one who can search the hearts and the minds of a human being or any living being. He's the only one that has that capability. And he sends only his angels to harvest the saved. We puny humans are not qualified. Christ says no, Matthew 13, 29. The servants of Christ say, should we go out and harvest the, the saved versus the unsaved? And Christ says no. You're idiots. Okay, I added that last part. We don't have the capability. No means no. Anyway, why do these grandiose, malignant, narcissistic, whitewashed, sepulcher, Pharisee pastors delight and they rush to announce their opinions on the eternal destinations of living beings, whether they be animals or humans? Why are they doing that? No. I don't want to misrepresent my position here. I know that there are unsaved people, but I don't know who they are. And I don't want to know. I looked at no means no, and I said, okay, that's no. It's not my job to pronounce salvation on someone or to, or to condemn someone. Not my job. Right. I will tell you, it is an individual uh, situation, I will tell you, who Christ is, and then you reach out to him. I don't grab your hand and force you to do it. This is not the Spanish Inquisition. Oh. 
I asked the question, why do these grandiose, malignant, narcissistic, whitewashed, sepulchral Pharisees delight and rush to announce their opinions on the eternal destinations of living beings, whether they be animals or human? And looky there, I answered that question within the question. I did. Beware religious leaders who portray themselves as the gatekeepers, the arbiters of salvation. They're dangerous people. And they're everywhere, aren't they, Dave? They are everywhere. It's incredible. Okay. Where was I? Can I defend my position, my thesis, that the teaching of the cessation of existence for all animals is wicked heresy? Can I defend that? We shall see here in a minute. I'm going to begin just with a true circumstance as an example of Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Very important verse, Exodus, or series of verses. It's also Matthew 4, as you know. It's Luke, since Mark 1, it's Luke 4. <coughs> so, is God among us or not? Why is it the Jews said, the Israel, nation of Israel said to God, why is it you, God, have brought us up out of Egypt to kill, murder, annihilate us, our children, and our livestock? Now, I added a few more words just for the series of our discussion. They're accusing God of bringing them out of Egypt for the sole purpose of murdering them. That's what they said, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. They didn't say just there, as you know. They said it all the time. And so I'm going to use an example, uh, a, a true circumstance, as an example of that verse, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And I was required, it was necessary when I, I called the people and it was necessary to request permission from them, and it was granted. They said, go ahead. We think you should. And I said, good. I think it's so valuable and it's so illustrative that it's impossible to leave it out. But I had the condition that I withheld all the names, the Internet being the place of hostility that it is. That's only appropriate nowadays. And what I'm going to recount is absolutely true. I know some of those who are intimately aware of what occurred. Approximately 75 to 80 years ago, might be a little bit less, but I think that's correct, a young child girl was given a puppy. Her father gave her a puppy. The month was maybe April, maybe May. The father did this because he wanted the little girl to be occupied by attending to by raising the puppy. I should mention that this was a rural environment here. And the little girl was thrilled. She loved her puppy. She named the puppy. Took all the responsibility, the food, the exercise, the play. She and her dog were deeply bonded. Every day, all day, she's with her dog. That was the plan of the father. But then fall came, which meant school began. And the father no longer saw a need for his daughter to be distracted. Again, that was his plan. School was out. I've got to give her a distraction. School was coming, so she would now focus on school. So he took the dog and he executed it. Probably killed the dog with an axe. Probably killed the dog in front of the daughter. I don't know if that's true, but I believe it was. I think I can prove it. That would have been the usual method, an axe. And it gets worse, much worse. The father did this every spring, year 
after year after year. It's hard to even talk about. The little girl received a puppy in the spring. The father decapitated her dog in the fall. His reasoning was to keep his daughter busy so she wouldn't be a bother to him. And obviously, if she refused to care for the spring puppy, the father would immediately kill the spring puppy. So therefore, to keep the dog alive, to allow the puppy some time, albeit it's only a very short life, she, the girl, would comply. The puppy and her would at least have a short summer. Four months, maybe. And to repeat, this happened every year. Year after year. Now, I will say as a as an aside, eventually this father was murdered. He's a murder victim. He was without dispute an evil man. How much emotional and psychological damage did he do to his daughter before he was murdered? And again, the murder remains unsolved. She's still alive. You can talk to her. Her life has been severely impacted. It's been traumatized. The repeated agony, the sorrow, the anguish, hoping that the father this year maybe would not kill this dog, but year after year, every puppy slain. Imagine what this evil man did to his child, the hopelessness that he inflicted on her. It is my opinion that the father likely lied every single time, too. Lied to the child gave her hope, gave her false hope, because that's what pathological, sadistic narcissists do. And he clearly was a sociopath. And hopefully many of you, if not every one of you listening, have already made the connection to Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. You've made the connection to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Matthew 7, 11. You see, I, I've had six dogs. And you'll figure out the names. Uh, Joshua, Jacob, Ezekiel were my first three. And then Sierra, obviously, was, a, was, was given to us. And Abigail, Brinkley. And then I had a, a, a cat, uh, Aesop. And Jessica, a rabbit, that was given. And most of them I saved because they were about to be killed. The ones that I did, but uh, the, let's see, count, count three of them, four of them were, were I, I had as puppies. Abigail, as you know, is my 14-year-old Labrador, and her short summer is coming to an end. She is 14 years, two months old, and she's dying from osteosarcoma. I mentioned that well, quite a few weeks ago. That's when I started this. And she has been an angel her whole life, never done anything wrong, a beautiful dog, loving, obedient, happy, playful, sweet, gentle. And I'm going to weep when she is gone. I've already wept for her. She's a beautiful angel. But I know, and knowing doesn't always help. I, I realize that. I, I know things. It doesn't always help me. Feeling things and knowing things are in two separate categories. And I like to say, do you want to know or do you want to feel? And you, you need to know. But the feelings sometimes uh, prevail. 
But I, I can prove that our father is not a wicked murderer of dogs at the end of every summer. Uh, any animals. These are dogs that he has given. Why do I know that? Because they're his dogs. And I have, I have them for a short time. So if you teach, and I'm speaking to these much mad people, if you teach that our Heavenly Father is a sociopath, that the eternal God of creation, the eternal God created temporal animals. You teach that, and you do. You know who you are. There's tens of thousands of you out there. Every seminary. If you teach that, I want you to think about the contradiction between eternal God and creating temporal living beings. Excuse me. If you think that God is doing that for the sole purpose of destroying them after a brief presence in this fallen world, so they have a short life. Some of them are, don't even make it into life at all. They're dead in the womb. If you believe that God created these temporary animals and, and, he, and the sole purpose ultimately is destroying them after they have been in this fallen world for a very, very minute amount of time, relatively, then you're accusing Christ of being a wicked, lying psychopath. That's what you're doing. You're making him the father in that true story. You're exhibiting, you're saying that he is exhibiting the exact behavior, the exact reasoning of the aforementioned father of the little young girl. That's what you're saying. Can you see that? I hope you can. It's identical. It's the same. And it cannot be true. It is not true. John 11.25 Christ is life. Colossians 3.4 He's life. Christ is the resurrection and the life. Again, John 11.25 Can't say that verse enough. God does not think like this man thought. He has not given me this precious dog, all of these dogs, to destroy them eternally after a very short period of time. Are you, you folks out there, you know this is true. You know it can't be true. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. You get one verse out of me today. Isaiah 55, 8. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He doesn't think like us. You need to learn how to think like him. Do not assign the evil thoughts and deeds of men. Don't give him atheistic evolutionary philosophy. God does not have atheistic evolutionary philosophy. And this cessation of life in animals comes from that particular frame of reference. He doesn't think like that. He thinks the opposite. Do not assign the evil thoughts and deeds of men to the one who is life himself, the one who resurrects. Matthew 7.11. I put it on the board and I have it. Seven eleven is not just uh, a uh, service station and a little tiny place to buy donuts and basic uh, and potato chips and things. If you then believe evil, 
know how to give get good gifts to your little children. If you, being evil, he says to us, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will I, your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? What is he saying there? You are, we, we're evil and we know to give good gifts to our children and he is not. There's no evil anywhere near him. How much better of a good gift will he get? Do you really think that God who created these animals gave them his breath, the breath of the spirit of life, would discard his animals into nothingness? Now, we had the discussion last week. There is no such thing as nothingness in the right context. You have to be able to define nothingness. You have to ignore that God is something in order to make nothingness prevail. Do you really think this is his character, that he thinks like this? This is the person of the Almighty God, really? That's what you want? You want to think that? Why do so many teach this? What's that word? Crap. May I suggest to for those who adhere to this supposed tenet that your assessment of Jesus Christ is woefully impoverished. It's bereft. This is anthropomorphism again. This is humanity putting its characteristics onto the person of God. And it is wrong to do that. He he doesn't think like us. He's not like us. He is pure good. This position has no accuracy in it. It is specious. It is destructive. It is hopeless. It's exactly the the same premise as the lie of Satan, Genesis 3-4. I could never imagine I got, let me count them, I got one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, nine grandchildren. All of them have animals. I can't even imagine saying to those children, they're little children, your dog, your rabbit, your chickens, when they're dead, they are gone forever. God made a whole bunch of temporary animals just to give us something to do, and then he's going to kill every single one of them, annihilate them, and destroy them. He's going to murder them. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. That's what he's going to do. I can't believe it. It just astonishes me. And it is the lie of Satan. Genesis 3, 4, Ezekiel 28, 16, Psalm 10, 8, Isaiah 14, 13. That's where you can find the lie of Satan. Job 1, Job 2, you can find that lie. And it is a hopeless lie of annihilation. That is what he says. That is what he said to the angels, 28, 6 of Ezekiel. When one adds annihilationism to the attributes of God with respect to the nefesh, the ruach, the shah, eternal living beings, if you give that, if you give him annihilation, if you say annihilation is consistent with the nefesh, the ruach, and the shayah, then my suggestion is that you need a mandatory retrospection. Reconsider immediately. Do not call God capricious, unstable, arbitrary, depraved. He will never abandon or forget his. The animals are mine. He won't forget his. Never. John 3.16, Matthew 19.14. Don't have time for them on the board now. I don't. Deuteronomy 31, 8, 31, 6, Hebrews 15, or 13, 5, and 6, Psalm 94, 14, Matthew 28, 20. Run the tape back. 
He's never going to forget or abandon his. Won't do it. You can abandon and reject him. He will never abandon or reject his. Dave's in this argument all day long too, aren't you? How about those verses? I will never forget you. I will never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. That's what he says over and over again in the Bible. And they say, oh, yes, he will. No, he won't. There's a postscript here to the account, this true account of the little girl. She was damaged. You can only imagine, right? Torture. This is torture. She became a hoarder. You know why? She's unwilling to part with anything and to keep everything. Anything and everything. And I submit the uh, correlation is causation. How could it not be? How could you not be damaged going through that? Matthew 19.14 Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them of such those who come to him, uh, they come to him. If Christ were here, every little kid would come to him. What else would come to him? Every single animal. Such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and prayed, Matthew nineteen thirteen, and departed from there. He, oh, he, you can tell by how he responded. That powerful rebuke is that this is something that makes him just makes him mourn trying to deny children to come to him why did jesus god the lord god almighty the word made flesh god himself touch the children why did he touch the children because they're his that's absolutely right these are mine the children are mine he also touched the leper, Matthew 8, 3, immediately cleansing the leper. Leper, bang, immediately cleansed. He touches those that are his, doesn't he? Acts 10, 9 through 15, the animals are in this heavenly great sheet, this, and they are cleansed, as I brought up last week, or the week before, I can't remember, I'm old. The animal, animals are mine, saith the Lord. What God has cleansed, you must not called defiled. Do not forbid the little children to come to me. What what I have cleansed, you do not call defiled. Defiled. Can, can, can I make the... Can I make the... Yes, I can. You must not call annihilated. He could have said it that way, couldn't he? Don't call them defiled. Don't call them annihilated. I can make the case that cessation of existence is the equivalent of defilement, of contamination, of corruption. Don't call contaminated what God has cleansed, what God has, who Jesus Christ, God, has touched. Christ was with the wild beast, Mark 113. What do you think he did there? The animals that are his, Psalm 50, 10 through 11, the animals are mine, they're his. He's with them, Mark 113. He touches his. And what did he pray, Matthew 19.13? Why did he touch him? Matthew 18.10, Jesus' word, Take heeds that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of God, my Father who is in heaven. What is the meaning of that? 
The angels always see the face of God. The angels of these children always see the face of God. If you see the face of God, what has happened? Obviously, Matt, through 18.10, will send us to Exodus 33.20. No one may see the face of God and live. Exodus uh, 32.30. Jacob wrestled with Christ, the angel of the Lord, and survived and named the place Peniel. Because he saw God face to face. Moses was known by God face to face, Deuteronomy 34.10. Revelation 24.22.4. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. The occupants of the new city of Jerusalem, they're going to be able to see. That's us. We're going to be able to see God face to face. We're going to be able to see Jesus Christ, the almighty God, face to face. So what does all that mean? That means the saved shall see the face of the one who saved, the resurrection and the life, the one who resurrects and gives life. They will see his face. And I am obviously proposing that children and animals are touched by God. They are, in a, they are in similar categories. The children and the little children, the children, the little children are his and the animals are his. They both are defined that way. Do not interfere with this fundamental truth. What do you suppose is the collectivity of the animals are mine, says the Lord God. What do you think that means? They're his for a little short period of time and then he kills them all? Is that your position? You've got to be insane to think that. That's what insane people think. By collectivity, I mean how expansive is this declaration from God himself? The animals and the little children are mine. Do you suppose it's insignificant? A simple statement? It's meaningless? It only has a tiny little narrow meaning? Why don't I, why do I have a headache? Because you're Yeah, that could be so. I just can't stand it. On my tongue. Oh, good. Will you will you believe it's insignificant that it's narrow that it's temporal, or do you think it's breathtaking? It's astonishing. It's timeless filled to the brim with information as to the goodness, the mercy, the loving kindness, the faithfulness, the justice, the righteousness of the Almighty God. Testifying of Him, Psalm 36, uh, 5 through 7. Memorize 36, 5 through 7. Tells you what He is like. 36, 5 through 7. All those things I just rattled off, it tells you that's Him. That's who He really is. That's how he thinks. He does not think temporally. In other words, what does mind mean to God? The breath, his breath makes them his. And they are good gifts to us. To Adam. The animals. Think about that. His breath makes them his. That's his way of, of owning them, if you want to think. And owning us. He's the possessor of all things. And they, these animals are good gifts to us. And to Adam, Adam names each and every one of the good gifts God gave him, Matthew 7, 11, and Genesis 2, 19 through 20. As many of you have already deduced, children, little children are also gifts. They're good gifts. Not so much teenagers. <laughs> little children. Don't make that distinction. That surliness, that's, this surliness starts to show up about age 13 and it stays until about age 85. I'm kidding. 
<laughs> and yes, I am overtly proposing that little children and animals are a paralyzation, parallelization. Okay, that's enough of that. So what have I got? I got 15 minutes here, so I'm in great shape. Let's move to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Because we have problems to solve. If you get animals right, you're going to get a lot of things right. If you get them wrong, you're going to get a lot of things wrong. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Hang on. My hands don't work so good anymore. <coughs> okay. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. I always use this verse on first fruits. Has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for death for the saved. He only describes those that are saved as having fallen asleep because it is a temporary suspension of servanthood. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man, by Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. All means all. Who dies? That's right. Animals die. Humans die. Everything dies because of Adam. All die. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each one of his, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Those who belong to Christ, who he says belong to me. Back we go to Psalm 50, 10 through 11. Who does he say the animals belong to? Him. Those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Okay? Let me pick the page. I should read these pages. So I know what I'm saying. Instead of running off into the woods all the time. The pivotal words with 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 are but each in his own order. What am I solving right now? Or attempting to solve. I'm going to erase this because I've got things to write on it here now. So hopefully it's been up there long enough. For those of you who think and did not think I made a strong enough case to go check it out. The pivotal words there is but each in his own order. So his will be resurrected unto life. His, mine. He says they're mine. They're his. They're going to be resurrected, but each, but each in their own order. Christ's resurrection is the fundamental, the first fruits upon which all resurrection unto eternal life. Notice how I'm saying that, unto eternal life. Yes, ma'am. I'm not telling you the time. I have a question. My Bible says, and I'm just going to bring this up because it could be easily an argument. Uh, my Bible says, every man in his own order. Yeah, we'd have to, we have to go back to the Greek. 
and and see whether or not women are excluded from salvation because it's a little touchy. It could go either way. I mean, it's possible. I'm just saying. No. Yeah, why, why would he use the male pronoun? We'd have to find out, is that the male pronoun? Now, do I know that for sure off the top of my head? I don't. I'm assuming it's a general term, but each in his own order. So, man doesn't just mean man or woman. It means, man represents children, animals. Well, it means for sure, I'm going to get to that. Gosh, why are you trying to get ahead of the guy running this place? You, you act like I have no authority at all. Oh, wait. <laughs> See if I can answer it as I keep going. I think it's a general term. That's what I think. We'd have to take a Greek study and trace it back. And listen, do we have the original manuscript written by Paul? We do not. We have somebody's translation of it. And, uh, and maybe it's not even a pure translation. In other words, it did not read the original manuscript. Maybe they read uh, somebody else's interpretation of what they thought it meant. And that's the problem that we have. So we don't throw it out and don't make conclusions on one verse. We'll find all the verses that talk about resurrection. What does he call Eve? The mother of all living, right? Well, how about Mary Magdalene? Do you think she got saved? Yeah. So we know women are saved as much as we don't want that. I'm kidding. Gosh, don't, don't write me. Unless, you, unless it's funny, then I'll take it. Hi, Luke. How you doing? Anyhow. You got me distracted now. Sorry. The but each in his own order. Christ's resurrection again. That's he's the he's the substrate, the fundamental, the cornerstone, the first fruits upon which all resurrection unto eternal life flows from. That's him. Christ is the pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb who sits on the throne, Revelation 4, 2 through 5, Revelation 5, 1 through 8, 13, and 13, and Revelation 22, 1. He is that water of life that flows out and gives life to everything around him. And, and, and the word here, I should say this is, uh, is tagmata, mari, in the Greek. Okay? It's a T. Why do I make a small T and capital everything else? I don't know. I don't know why. Okay, the Greek word tamagi, tagmati, it's a military term. And what it means, what it gives the context to, is an army marching in columns towards a battlefield. So I have a marching army in columns. And we would see that today, we would see artillery, we would see tank battalion, we would see infantry, we might see... Uh, in, in those days, you had cow, cavalry, you had all kinds of different chariot-drawn systems. <coughs> you had people with armor, you had people with spear systems, you had all kinds of different weaponry. So that's what's implied here. It's a military term. tells you that an army is marching in columns. And some have offered a parade analogy. You'll see that very commonly. The point being, yea, a point that the resurrections are sequential. They're not all at once. They're in an order. They're in a military structured order. The first is Christ, so he's the first one in the order. And do not think chronologically, because you get confused. All resurrections are dependent upon Christ's resurrection, so he's the first. Without his resurrection, there is no resurrection, right? So he's the first in the order, not the first chronologically necessarily, as we know about the graves that were uh, opened 
at his crucifixion. We know about uh, Elijah. Uh, we know about the little girl, right? The little girl is his, isn't she? Anyway, now some of you are already ahead of me as always, and good for you. I think that's fantastic. You know where we're going with these resurrections. Because what do we know so far? What have we learned? I hope we've learned it. We know that animals are in heaven, Revelation 5.13. Been talking about that for weeks. Acts 10, 9 through 15. We know they're in heaven and we know they're changed. They're different. They can sing. They can, they can speak praises. They're different. They're raised in glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through 44. We are sown in dishonor and raised in glory. That's what he said. We are in corruption and raised in incorruption. Therefore, the questions, in which stages are the animals resurrected? Were they resurrected when Christ was resurrected? So we have Christ's re- resurrection. We know all about that. It's on first fruit. So that's the first one. And then we have the second one. How many, were, how many animals were raised when Christ resurrected himself? When the triune, the Elohim, the us resurrected him and when he resurrected himself. He says so in John, right? The second resurrection is the abduction of the bride. That's the rapture of the church. So we have two. See, really you have the first resurrection and the second resurrection. But the first resurrection has five, five orders to it. Second resurrection has two. So, we have to know that. Where am I now? Getting water. So you have think of think of it this way: you have Christ in the head. Now you're you're sitting in the in the parade stands and you're watching this military order go by. And first is Christ. That's the commander. That's God. There he goes first. Second is the bride. Is the church? Yes, sir. Just wanted to add this in because you added it in before, and I want to make sure you didn't miss it. What about the ones that got resurrected right after? Uh, yes, I, again, that, the, the, where, where would you put them? In the, did they resurrect with Christ? Um, now, they resurrected again chronologically. You're correct. They are before Christ. But the, by the way, the, he's still the fundamental. Right. So, so their resurrections have to occur because his resurrection. Now, he's, there's a time issue here for you. Right. But it's still, so you would put them... You would put them in category one, right? So right behind Christ, he's leading. Right behind him might very well be those that came out of the graves at his crucifixion. Right. It just didn't want you to miss that. Right. But who else did? That's what I'm asking. Did anybody else go in that resurrection? So we'll have to get through that, right? So the bride now marches in the second procession. And remember, the bride is abducted in Revelation 4.1. I'm sorry. And animals are in heaven in Revelation 5.13, for sure. So, here's the rapture. Do you, so, I'm just asking, because that's me. You have to figure this out. I think you do. So, these again, the second resurrection of the first resurrection, does that make sense? It's the abduction of the bride, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Revelation 4.1. The bride marches in the second position of the second procession. And animals, are, again, are in heaven. At 513. Uh, after the abduction of the bride at 41. 
And obviously there's an uncountable number of animals there because we see that at 5.11 and 13. Can't count them, there's so many of them. When did they get there? And, and so we have this issue also of paradise. Luke 23.43 Truly, verily I say to you Gosh, it's a powerful verse. I say to you, I've got to hurry now. Christ God himself says to the saved thief, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is Luke 16, 22, Abraham's bosom. So Christ said, you will be with me. Now, who's you there? We know Christ and the saved thief went to paradise on the same day. What happened to paradise? Paradise goes to heaven. How do I know that? You figure it out. You can do this. We know that it's taken to heaven. How do I know that? Note that Christ did not say, your body and my body will be in paradise. He says, you and me will be in paradise. How much more do you need right there? You, I've said it for thousands and thousands of times, you are not the body. This is this body is not me. You means you. You, not the body. You is you. How's that for profound? I get big money here. You is the breath of the Spirit of God. It, the breath of the Spirit of God is what? What is that? It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. Animals are a gift. Little children are a gift. Figure out what all the good gifts are. You'll, you're evil, and you'll give something good. How, how good is what he gives? He gives you the breath of the Spirit of God. It's his breath. He gives you his breath. It's a good gift. Consciousness must come from consciousness. Eternity must come from eternity. Anyway, the mind, the soul, the breath of the thief was in paradise with Christ. Christ did not. He left his body in the tomb. He doesn't consider his body him. He considers his mind, his consciousness, him. You will be with me. You won't be with my body. He could have said, you'll be with my body. Well, then he'd be in the tomb, right? The thief got as far as the tomb. Okay, not great. Anyway, the mind, the soul, the breath of the thief was in Christ, or was with Christ in paradise, and Christ takes paradise to heaven, which then explains, okay, Acts, where am I here? I got, uh, I'm up here somewhere. I don't even know where it is. I'm going to just put it here. Acts 10, 9 through 15, because that's the great sheet that is filled with uncountable, unnumerable not able to even be figured out by human or angel. There's so many of them at Acts 10, 9 through 15 in that great sheet, and they're all animals. When did they get to heaven? What am I intimating here? Uh, just as the body of you is not you, the body of the animal is not the animal. The animal has the same breath as the thief does. Same exact breath, Ecclesiastes 3, 19. It's not on the board anymore. Same breath, Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130. 2, 7, 7, 15, 7, 19. And again, Ecclesiastes 3, 19. Same breath. All that to say is that there are animals in heaven right now and their bodies are not there. Just like Lazarus, just like Abraham.
Just like the thief, they await resurrection. Same as the tribulational saved, Revelation 7, 9 through 17. Revelation 20, verse 4, for example. I have tribulational saved people. They're going to be in heaven. You'll see them in, again, Revelation 7. And again, Revelation 20, they're in there. The tribulational saints are in the fifth column. Okay, they're down here. Here's the tribulational saints. They're right there, number five. Of the first resurrection, they're the fifth group to go by. Okay? And now you get the millennial saints, right? And the millennial animals. They're not resurrected at all. They're not even in the parade. Why not? Simple question. They don't die. They don't die. You make the case that they have some similarity to the bride. Because there's some in the bride that did not die physically either. So you have to make the case that every man is for every man to die. So somehow the rapture has something to do with that verse. But then you see the tribulational saints. They don't die. There's no evidence that they need resurrection. Same for those animals. And yes, I know stuff. I know about Ezekiel 45, 22 through 25. I'll get to that. Feel free to just run out for Ezekiel 45, 22 through 25 and include Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. What is all that? That's right. That's communion. I'm saying Ezekiel 45, 22, the solution is in communion. So go ahead, run off and do that, those of you on the internet. The millennial saints and the millennial animals are not resurrected because they do not die. All animals in that state are returned to their Edenic condition with their full capacities restored, plus whatever else he's doing with them. He's going to make all the animals have the same level. I can tell you that for sure. Okay, where, where am I really now? The first resurrection is in five stages and is the resurrection of those who are in the new city of Jerusalem. Everybody who is in the new city of Jerusalem is going to be in that parade. And there are five columns of it. Okay? And that, that's described in type by Zechariah 4.4. You see what's going on in 4.4 in Revelation 21.22. And it is filled with angels and it is filled with animals. Again, Zechariah 4.4 4 and Hebrews 12.22. And the saved, those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, Revelation 21.4. It's got those three realms in the new city of Jerusalem. All three make it. What you Is it your stupid crap position that the angels make it and humanity makes it, but he kills all the animals and annihilates them? I mean, how can you have that? Why do you teach nonsense like that? What's wrong with you? And now you're going to get hate mail. Bring it on. The two witnesses are the third resurrection. How many people get resurrected when the two witnesses, Revelation 11, get resurrected? And go up to what? In, a, in the whirlwind, in the... In the pillar of cloud. How big is the pillar of cloud? Just asking for a friend. I don't have any friends. I, two witnesses. Do you think only two people are resurrected at that time? God, Christ, resurrects things. He likes it. How many did he take with the two witnesses? How big is the pillar of cloud? And remember, it's a military march of columns. So you've got all of these with Christ. You've got all of these with the abduction of the bride. And then you've only got two guys. Is that your idea of a parade? It's columns. It's columns. Everyone is a column. Two isn't a column. 
How many uncountable living souls are in each of the five columns? Oh, rookie, again, I answered the question in the question, didn't I? In the fourth is the Old Testament saints. Okay? They march by fourth. That's uh, And they're in the 75-day interval. It's Daniel 12.2. And I want to know who else is with them. Is it just the Old Testament saints? Has he got anybody else he can put in there? How big is that column? What about the pre-flood animals? When do they get to go? And feel free to agree with me eventually on them as well. Because you will. Because I'm right again. I know it's discouraging. The resurrection of the second death, the second dead. Okay? The twice dead. The permanently dead does not mean existence. They have eternal existence, but they're called permanently dead. It's a condition, not an existence. The second resurrection, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the great white throne judgment, the Antichrist and the profane prophet are the first fruits of the twice dead. So I asked the same question. How many went with them? Who would go with the Antichrist and the false prophet? If you, where, where would you, where would the pre-flood world go? The human, where does the pre-flood animals go in this order? Where does the pre-flood humanity go? That were all killed. And as you know, how many children were killed in the flood? The children were his. The animals are his. And he grieved. He did. He did not give me Abigail or Joshua or Ezekiel, Jacob. He did not give them to me, Brinkley or Sarah, to kill them and leave me without them every summer. It's not what he does. Stop it. He is not a sociopathic killing murderer. That is exactly what they accused him of in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. That is why he says, is God among us or not? Okay, that's enough ranting for one, well, probably for the rest of my life, so we'll call it good. I better turn this off this time, huh? I think you should.